Esther. And we are in chapter 3 of Esther. Uh, at the end of chapter 2, which we really didn't get a chance to cover last time, we got caught up in something and never got to the very tail end of chapter 2. But something interesting takes place at the end of chapter 2 of Esther, which has a direct bearing with the beginning of chapter 3 of Esther. If, if you recall, in chapter 2 of Esther, uh, you have this uh, competition that goes on for a protracted period of time, seeking to uh, replace Queen Vashti. And in chapter 1, Queen Vashti uh, insults uh, King Xerxes uh, by refusing to comply with his demand that she come in and parade herself before his guests at a party. Uh, uh, the, the text says that he insisted that she come uh, with nothing on but her crown. And she said, no, she wasn't going to do that. And the king was so flustered by the fact that she said, no, he didn't know what to do. And uh, his advisors surrounding him suggested that he pass an edict that uh, banned Queen Vashti and banned any woman within the provinces of Persia from uh, not complying with any demand of her husband. Uh, whatever the husband said do, that's what the wives are supposed to do. Said, and, and, and they actually used the term to keep women in their place, uh, wh wh which is an interesting choice of terms. And then the next time you, you, we were together in Esther chapter 2, Vashti is only mentioned at the very start of the chapter, and her name never appears again in the book. And it's only mentioned to state the fact that she was replaced, that, that, that she was banned, that she was gone, and that Xerxes was looking for someone to replace her. And it was suggested to him that uh, he hold a contest and bring all of the virgins of the land uh, to uh, him uh, for them to parade themselves before him and for him to make a selection from them. We're introduced to a man named Mordecai. And when Mordecai learned of this contest, uh, he saw this as an opportunity for himself to gain uh, a place of uh, honor, to, to gain a place of influence, not honor, to gain a place of influence within uh, uh, King Xerxes' administration. And so he had uh, a, a young woman who was under his care. Uh, some texts say cousin, some texts say niece. Uh, whichever way you put it, she was a relative of his. She was a very attractive young woman. And he pushes her into the contest. I want you to notice that. And, 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 uh, we, we, this is where we got caught last time. We, we got stuck on this point, and, and we couldn't get away from it. That's why we didn't get to the end of Esther chapter 2. I want you to see that someone who was himself a victim of exploitation decides to use the means of exploitation in order to victimize somebody else and not only somebody else, his kinfolk. For those who think that if it happened to me, I would be so mortified by it that it would never, I, I would never do that to anyone else because I know what it feels like to be exploited. I know what it feels like to be used. All you gotta do is read the text. And the text makes it abundantly clear that given the right set of circumstances, we can do anything, and we can justify anything that we do. We can say that it's all right. Uh, uh, Mordecai, not only does he exploit his, his, his uh, young niece, cousin, uh, kinfolk in this way, but he exploits her even further by telling her, now don't tell nobody that you're Jewish. Uh, 
you, you, you withhold that. Keep that to yourself. Uh, you, they don't need to know that. So he shrouds what he's doing in, in a veil of secrecy because he recognizes that as a Jewish person, uh, if, his Jew, if his Jewishness was known to the Medo-Persians, it might limit his ability to be influential within the kingdom. He, this is not so that he can protect Esther. This is the point I want you to see. This is not so he can protect Esther. This is so he can promote himself. And, and the point that we got stuck on the last time was it doesn't matter who's doing the exploiting. Exploitation in and of itself is wrong. I don't care where you learned how to exploit. This thing that, well, they do it to me. So if they do it to me, if it's good enough for them to do it to me, then it's good enough for me to do it to somebody else. That's a poor attitude to have. Particularly, and I know this is written in, in, in a pre-Christ time, but this is particularly true when it comes to Christian folk. What are we taught as Christians with regard to how we are treated? This is what we're taught. We are taught that as others have wronged you, you treat them right. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that use you and persecute you. Christians should not be guilty of exploiting other folk. Not just other Christians, other folk. Now, let me stay on my soapbox just a little bit longer, just to bring us up to speed with where we left off last time. We recognize that capitalism in and of itself is an exploitative economic system. If anybody who doesn't understand that, you just ain't paying attention. You don't have to go to an economics class to know that capitalism exploits. Capitalism works because those who have something take advantage of those who don't have it. That's the only way that it works. That's the only way that the richest 1% of the people in this nation own more than the other 90% of this nation. It's exploitation. It's the only way that, that these executives can make the multiple millions of dollars that they make while the laborer who actually does the work produces the goods and the services have to live on minimum wage. I, I'm sure I've got teachers in here. If I don't have teachers, I got people who used to be teachers in here. Uh, the, 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 the paper was touting the other day a $1,000 pay raise for teachers. That's not $1,000 a month. That's $1,000 a year. Teachers received a pay raise. And, 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 and the governor that we all voted for, because God knows we didn't want Eddie responding, uh, the, the, the governor that we all voted for is touting the fact that, that he got a pay raise for teachers of $1,000 a year. Well, break that down. $1,000 a year is less than $100 a month. Before taxes. It's less than $100 a month. We ask teachers to do an incredible thing. We ask teachers to take 20, 25, 30 children at one time, get them at 7 o'clock in the morning, keep them till 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 
teach them something over the time that they are there. Make sure that they eat when they're supposed to eat. Make sure that they take their medicine because they come with a whole list of medicine that they are supposed to take. Be the referee between the squabbles that take place within the classroom. Negotiate with parents, grandparents, or significant others to make sure that Jane and Johnny do their homework, have the things necessary to do their homework. And the pay raise that they got, and, and, and that's just what immediately came to my mind. I'm sure there's way more to it than what I just said. The pay raise that, that, that everybody is touting as significant is less than $100 a month before taxes. We ain't here to talk about the education system. What we're here to talk about is exploitation. Mordecai sees an opportunity to exploit his young relative Esther so that Mordecai can get in good with the king. And he takes full advantage of it. He, he, he sends her to the contest. She goes there and she spends a year learning how to beautify herself and how to conduct herself and carry herself so that the king will be attracted to her. And the text says that when she actually made it to the king, that he fell in love with her. Look at the last part of Esther chapter 2. Well, not the last part. Verse 17. The king fell in love with Esther far more than with any of his other women or any of the other virgins. He was totally smitten by her. He placed a royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet for all his nobles and officials, Esther's banquet. He proclaimed a holiday for all the provinces and handed out gifts with royal generosity. Now, that sounds good, but understand, this young woman has been taken advantage of. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I want to be taken advantage of like that. If I'm going to be a queen and if I'm going to get this and if I'm going to get that and I'm going to get that, then you've never been taken advantage of. Because if you've been taken advantage of, what you come to realize is there is nothing that can compensate you for the loss of your dignity, for the loss of your personal integrity. Nothing can compensate you for that. It doesn't matter who does the exploiting. Exploitation in and of itself is wrong. And we should refrain from exploitation as much as we possibly can. Now, the end, I still ain't got to what I want to talk about to lead us into chapter 3. Look at the end of chapter 2. Start, start with verse 21. On this day, with Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, had it in for the king and were making plans to kill King Xerxes. But Mordecai learned a plot and told Queen Esther, who then told King Xerxes, giving credit to Mordecai. See how Esther is? She gave credit to Mordecai. When the thing was investigated and confirmed as true, the two men were hanged on a gallows. This was all written down in a log book kept for the king's use. Now, that's how chapter 2 ends. Now, if you are responsible for saving the king's life, what do you expect in return? 
expect some kind of reward. You, you, you expect some kind of promotion. You, you expect a position. You expect something to take place that recognizes that you are responsible for saving the king. Well, look how chapter 3 starts. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman. Who? Who? Surely the text meant Mordecai, right? I mean, chapter 2 ended with Mordecai being responsible for saving Xerxes' life. Yet chapter 3 starts by saying that Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, making him the highest-ranking official in the government. Okay, well, maybe that was just an overreach for Mordecai. Maybe being the highest-ranked guy is, is too much. Well, read, read on and, 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 and see how it turned out for Mordecai. All the king's servants at the king's gate used to honor him by bowing down and kneeling before Haman. That's what the king had commanded. Except Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't do it. Wouldn't bow down and kneel. The king's servants at the king's gate asked Mordecai about it. Why do you cross the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him about this, but he wouldn't listen. So they went to Haman to see whether something shouldn't be done about it. Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw for himself that Mordecai didn't bow down and kneel before him, he was outraged. Meanwhile, having learned that Mordecai was a Jew, Haman hated to waste his fury on just one Jew. He looked for a way to eliminate not just Mordecai, but all Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the first month, the month of Nisan, of the twelfth year of Xerxes, the pur, that is, the lot, was cast under Haman's charge to determine the propitious day and month. The lot turned up the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Haman then spoke with King Xerxes. There's an odd set of people scattered throughout the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. Their customs and ways are different from... This is why I want to do Esther. Do you, are you listening to this? There's an odd group of people who don't fit in. There's a, a group of people that don't do what we do. There's a group of people that don't think like we think. There's a group of people whose customs are very different from the customs of the rest of us. And I think something ought to be done about it. I think, I, I think that we need to do something about that. Their customs and ways are different from those of everybody else. Worse, they disregard the king's laws. They're an affront. The king shouldn't put up with them. If it please the king, let orders be given that they be destroyed. I'll pay for it myself. Because my father gave me $20 million when I started my business career. So I have the money to do this. I'll deposit 375 tons of silver in the Royal Bank to finance 
the operation. The king slipped his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, arch enemy of the Jews. Go ahead, the king said to Haman. It's your money. Do whatever you want with those people. The king's secretaries were brought in on the 13th day of the first month. The orders were written out word for word as Haman had addressed them to the king's satraps, the governors of every province and the officials of every people. They were written in the script of each province and the language of each people in the provinces with the orders to massacre, kill, and eliminate all the Jews. Youngsters and old men, women and babies, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Copies of the bulletin were to be posted in each province, publicly available to all peoples to get them ready for that day. At the king's command, the couriers took off. The order was also posted in the palace complex of Susa. The king and Haman sat back and had a drink. Sat back and had a drink. Sat back and had a drink while the city of Susa reeled from the news. Okay, let's talk about this for a second. First question you ought to be asking me. What is an Agagite? A-G-A-G-I-T-E. What is an Agagite? I'll tell you what an Agagite is. An Agagite is a descendant from a man named Esau. Now, you might not recognize the term Agagite. You might not recognize the name Agag. But if you went to Sunday school, you ought to know who Esau is. Right? Esau was the son of a man named Isaac. And he was the grandson of a man named Abraham. And he was a twin. His twin brother was a man named Jacob. Y'all know who? Y'all know who Esau is now? Okay. Stay with me. Agag and, and the Amalekites that descended from Esau hated those who descended from Jacob, the Jews, the, 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 the children of Israel. And so when Haman finds out, when Haman the Agagite, the descendant of Esau, finds out that Mordecai, the Hebrew, the descendant of Jacob, was not bowing down to Haman when he showed up. He decided, Haman decided, that he would orchestrate a plan by which to kill not just Mordecai, not just Mordecai's immediate family, but everybody in the 120 seven provinces of Persia who was of Hebrew blood. 
Do you think that sounds bad? Let me make it even worse. Haman, technically, was of Hebrew blood. Because Haman was an Agagite and a Malachite. And the Amalekites were the descendants of Esau. And Esau's twin brother, twin brother, was Jacob. That means that they spent time in the same womb at the same time. Are you following me? Does any of this make sense to you? Or am I the only one who's, who, who, who's flabbergasted by this? Haman. It is not a stretch to say that Haman wants to kill his own brother. He wants to kill his own kinfolk. And why does he want to kill him? He wants to kill him because Mordecai, one individual, refused to bow. Go back and read the text again. I, I want to make sure that you, you, you get all of this. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, making him the highest-ranking official in the government. All the king's servants at the king's gate used to honor him by bowing down and kneeling before Haman. That's what the king had commanded, except Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't do it. Mordecai wouldn't bow and kneel. When the servants asked Mordecai about it, why you wouldn't, bow and kneel. Mordecai didn't say anything. He just wouldn't listen. And so finally they went to Haman to see if something could be done. And Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So Haman knows that this is blood kin to him. And Haman is carrying out a grudge that had existed since his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa had a fight with his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-uncle. This is as relevant today as it was then. Let me ask you a question. Who are you mad with? And, and, and before you just sit there and say, I ain't mad with nobody. What makes you? Think about it for your answer. Who are you mad with? Okay. Who are you mad with? <laughs> I heard you. Who are you mad with? How long you been mad? How long you gonna stay mad? How's it been working out for you? How, how, how does it work out for you to wake up mad? Yes, yes. And yet, we go to bed mad. We wake up mad. We carry, there are some people who have been told, and they don't know why. Don't mess with them folk. Them folk ain't right. Don't mess with them smiths. Ain't none of them Smiths no good. The granddaddy wasn't no good. 
daddy wasn't no good. Ain't, ain't no need you messing with any. Of the, I picked Smith because I think I'm fairly safe <laughs> if I say Smith. How long? How long you been mad? How long you gonna stay mad? And how's it working out for you? I, I asked the group at, at noon, how long are you gonna let your blood pressure be high? Well, you taking blood pressure medication every day because you mad at somebody. How long are you gonna let your cholesterol get out of control? Because you mad with somebody, because you still holding a grudge. Got something else for you. Since, since I'm on this subject, how can you call yourself a Christian and you still mad with somebody? I, I, I'm going to take y'all where I took them today. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Just after Jesus gives what we commonly call the model prayer, the Lord's prayer. Look at verse 14, and I'm reading from Peterson in the message version. In prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. How long you been mad? Yes, ma'am. Sure. I understand that. And that's what I'm talking about. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Mordecai is carrying out a grudge against, I'm sorry, Haman is carrying out a grudge against Mordecai. And his solution to the Mordecai problem is to kill every Jew in 127 provinces. I don't know. To me, that sounds a bit like overkill. How about just going to Mordecai and saying, man, when, when the thing, when, when I pass by, why don't you just bow? How about nobody dies? How about next time somebody steps on your tennis shoe, you just say, say, excuse me. Instead of getting ready to fight somebody because they stepped on your shoe. How about next time somebody keeps their eyes focused on you too long? You just ask, can I help you? Instead of you taking out a gun or a knife and saying, I shot him or I stabbed him because he was eyeballing me. This is as relevant today as it is in the text. This is what hate run amok looks like. This is generations of hate 
that have been built up to where you no longer see other people as people. You see them only as groups. Look at what he says. When, 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 when he goes to Haman, look at what he says. There's an odd set of people scattered throughout the provinces of your kingdom who don't fit in. Their customs and ways are different from those of everybody else. He doesn't see Mordecai as a person. He sees Mordecai as emblematic of the group to which he belongs. Yes. 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 And we can say the same thing. We just got through celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. That, that, that famous speech that everybody remembers, that's the only thing I remember about him, that he gave a speech on the Washington Monument. But, but, but within that speech, he says that he longed for the day, he dreamt of the day when his children were judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. See, color of the skin puts you in a group. And, 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 and there's a whole set of folk who look at you not as a person. They don't know you. They have just placed you in a group. Now, let me needle you just a little bit. Because white folk ain't the only ones who do that. We do that, too. And I ain't just talking about we do that to white folk. We do that to ourselves. Light skin versus dark skin. Straight hat versus kinky hat. We do that to ourselves. We, we, we are as guilty. Remember what I started with. It doesn't matter where the exploitation comes from. Exploitation under any and all circumstances is wrong. Well, the same thing can be said about hate. Doesn't matter where the hate comes from. Hate is wrong. There is no place in the heart of a Christian for hate. And, and, and so we have to be careful that we don't fall victim to the same kind of bigotry and discrimination that we suffer from. Yes, ma'am. I understand your point. My point is, if you, if you have a problem with me, you got a problem with me. The problem should not be with me and Demetria and Charles and Miles and Sanseri and Alex and Tori. And I can keep on naming my family, folks, but you get the point I'm trying to make. If you got a problem with me, if I did you something, if, if, if I mistreated you, disrespected you, took advantage of you, and you got a problem with me, take it up with me. Don't put out a hit squad on my whole family because you got a problem with me. And by the way, if you got a problem with me, let's have a conversation about it. Turn, turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, 
Look at verse 23. Verse 23. And again, I'm reading from the message version. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you. Abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make the first move. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, knowing his track record, you're likely to end up in court. Maybe even jail. If that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. This is Jesus talking. I'm reading from the message version. The message version doesn't have a red letter edition, at least not one that I found yet. But, but, but this, is, this is Jesus talking. Okay? So, here's the thing. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Haman hates Mordecai, not just because Mordecai wouldn't bow. Haman hates Mordecai because Mordecai is a part of a group of people. He's a part of, of a race of people. He's a part of a class of people that he deems unworthy and inferior and insufficient. And what Haman is actually practicing, help me, Holy Spirit, is self-hatred. Because the ancestors of Mordecai and the ancestors of Haman are brothers. They share the same father. They share the same grandfather. So the ancestors of Haman and the ancestors of Mordecai are kin. So if Haman hates Mordecai, Haman actually hates himself. I want you to let that settle in with you for just a second. People who hate other people because they belong to groups that you think, or that they think, I ain't going to put you in it, that they think are inferior, are really showing that they hate themselves. You want to know what weak people do? Weak people try to make themselves appear to be strong by misusing and abusing other people. If the only way you can make yourself look big is by making somebody else look small, then what you're really revealing about yourself is that you don't really love yourself. I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love him first. But I'll be honest with you. I love me some me. I love me some me. And I love me too much to waste time hating you. I ain't got no time for it. I ain't got no interest in it. It does nothing for me. It does not make me feel better about myself. It does not put me in a superior position over anybody else. 
to me, it is a waste of time and energy. So, I don't dislike anybody. I might take issue with a position that you have. And I might fight vigorously for the position that I hold. But once the argument is over, win, lose, or draw, I ain't got time to hate you. I ain't got no energy to hate you. I ain't got no interest. You ain't that important. Since, since, since I'm talking about this, just let me just put that out there. You ain't that important. Then I'm going to risk estrangement between me and my God over you. Really? You really think I'm, I'm, I'm going to let that happen? The one who woke me up this morning and started me on my way, keeps health in my body and sanity in my mind. I'm going to risk estrangement with him because of you. I don't think so. It ain't worth it. Haman says to Xerxes, there's a strange group in your provinces. And we need to do something about it. Now, we've already thrown the dice. That's what casting lots means. The, the text says that they, they cast the purr, and then it, it explains the purr is the Persian way of saying lots. Well, lots is the Jewish way of saying dice. Okay? We've already thrown the dice. And the dice landed on this particular day in this particular month. And this is what I want you to do, King. I want you to give the word that on this particular day, in this particular month, all those strange people will be put to death. Every single one of them. Men and boys. Women and girls. Put them all to death. Now, Brother King, I know that doing something like this has a cost attached to it. There, 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 there are economic concerns that are associated with this recommendation that I'm making. And I wouldn't dare come to you with a recommendation without also having a plan on how to pay for it. I'll pay for it myself. I'll take my own money. 375 tons of silver. I'll take that and I'll put it in the government treasury so that you can use it to pay for the people to slaughter all these strange different people. I'll pay for all of the signage, because you have to have billboards and stuff put out throughout. I, I'll pay for the whole thing. Ain't going to cost the government nothing. Let me tell you something. Folk who hate you so much that they'll pay to kill you, they really don't like you. Because one thing most folks love more than anything else is their money. They, they, they love their money. So if he's willing to part with vast sums of money in order to put these people to death, it's, it, it's an indication of just how Deeply rooted is the hatred that Haman has 
for these people. And as we said just a minute ago, hatred of people and groups is an indicator of hatred of self. It's, it's an indicator of a poverty of esteem. And so Haman is really indicating how much he despises himself by making this offer to the king. Now, look at Xerxes in response to this. Xerxes, the king, slipped his signet ring from his hand, verse 10, and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, arch enemy of the Jews. Go ahead, the king said to Haman, is your money. Do whatever you want with those people. This is the indifference of power. The king represents the greatest power in the land. 127 provinces of people, literally tens of millions of people, answer to this one king. He is in charge of all of them. One word, this is not a democracy. This is a monarchy. What the king says goes. With one word, the king could have stopped all of this. Stopped all of what? Well, in case you haven't been paying attention, what was proposed to the king was the mass slaughter of an entire race of people. At no cost to the kingdom. Because the person who proposed the mass slaughter said that he would pay for it himself. With one word, the king could have put an end to it. And I'm not saying that the word had to be kill Haman. All the king had to say was no. I would have felt better if he said something like, have you lost your mind? Are you completely insane? But I would have settled for, no, we're not going to do that. But the king says, do whatever you want. It's your money. What does that really mean when he says, do whatever you want, it's your money? He doesn't just say, do whatever you want. He says, do whatever you want, it's your money. What he's really saying is, as long as it doesn't injure me, as long as it doesn't detract from me, as long as it doesn't take away from me, I really don't care what you do. This is the indifference of power. This is, this is the, the problem with the power of capitalism. I told y'all last week, and, and I meant to look it up. I had a whole week to do it. I didn't do it. My fault. I'll know by next week who it was. Some company fired their chief executive. Not, not Apple. What was it? Chase fired their chief executive. And his severance package from Chase was over $60 million. Understand, he was fired because he was doing a terrible job. He was fired because he wasn't meeting any of the goals that had been set by the board of directors for him to meet. He was fired for incompetence. But his severance package was $60 million. 
that'll show him. He'll never do a terrible job for another company. <laughs> After all, the, 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 the next sentence said that he did forfeit $13 million in stock options. So, 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 I guess that balances out. $60 million in a severance package versus $13 million in stock options that he had to leave on the table. You ever work as a bank teller? You know somebody who works as a bank teller? Or who used to work as a bank teller? Let me tell you something about people who work as bank tellers. They don't make $60 million. They don't make $6 million. They don't make $600,000. They don't make $60,000. But the guy who was doing the terrible job, who was fired for cause. You ever been fired for cause? I guarantee you they didn't give you a severance package when you got fired for cause. What's the cause? You didn't meet any of the objectives that were set. What's the punishment? We're going to give you $60 million. This is the indifference of power. because he had to leave $13 million in stock options on, on the table. I'm sure, I'm sure he was grossly upset by, by that. This is the indifference of power. The king could have easily just stepped in and said, no, no, it, it's a ridiculous notion. We're not going to do that. Go on about your business. But what he said was, he, he didn't say, I think it's a good idea. He said, I don't care. And I think that's worse. He said, you can do with them whatever you want. Let me say something to you about capitalism. I'm running out of time. Let me, let me say something to you about capitalism. And, and, and I have to re repeat my, I haven't said it tonight, so I'll say it tonight. Then I'm going to say what I wanted to say. I know capitalism ain't going nowhere. This goes out all across the nation. We do this as a part of the podcast. So I don't know who's going to hear this and where they're going to hear it. So let me say this. I know capitalism ain't going nowhere. I know that that's the system that we live in, we're going to live in, and it's going to be a part of who we are. But let me tell you what the problem is in capitalism. The problem in capitalism is that somebody is always being taken advantage of. And people don't care. People don't care. People don't care. You don't ever think that you are not disposable. Don't listen to all that foolishness they tell you when your supervisor calls you and says, you're doing such a wonderful job, Bill. We're so happy to have you here with us. We don't know where the company would be without you. First of all, the supervisor who said that ain't going to be in his position too long. Somebody else is going to be sitting in that seat in a very short period of time. No, nobody stay nowhere any length of time. You are disposable. You hit that 20-year mark, they ready for you to go. Watch, plaque, certificate, cake, punch. Thank you very much. Next. Don't believe what they tell you. In capitalism, you are disposable. The moment they find somebody who can do what you do, and they ain't even got to do it better. They just got to do it for less money. 
So I, I'm looking at people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. You suppose me in your peak earning years? There's a 24-year-old who will do what you do for half of what you do it for. And somebody is trying to figure out how to move you out of where you are. Because that's the way it works. You are disposable. The only, the only time you get to be really good, I got five minutes left, only time you get to be really good is when you die. They'll fill up the funeral program with expressions as a worker, as a club member, as a friend. They'll fill up the funeral program with expressions. And then somebody will get up there and give words of comfort. And you'll be the best thing since sliced bread for that hour. That's right. That's right. And, and, and when we lead you out, they will have gone on to something else. If that sounds harsh, if that sounds ugly, I'm sorry. Let me tell you something. That's the truth. That's the truth. And you need to wrap your head around the truth. It keeps you from being disappointed. From time to time, I got people who come into my office and they start talking about what's going on in their lives. And, and, and at some point, they'll say something like, Reverend or Pastor, I, I'm just so disappointed in them. I, I just didn't think that they would do that to me. You fill in the blank for whoever they is. You want me to tell you how to keep from getting disappointed? Lower your expectations. Down to nothing. Because only when your expectations are low can people not disappoint you? And you can constantly be surprised. People can do the slightest thing. And, oh, baby, that's so sweet. Because you didn't expect nothing in the first place. That's the truth of life. And, and, and we need to, to recognize this reality. There's a group of people out there that are different from us. And I think that all of them need to be killed. For the sake of the nation, I think they all need to die. And to show you how committed I am to this, I'll pay for it myself. And the king says, as long as you're paying for it, I don't care. Next thing they say, I got, I got two minutes left. Ne next thing they say is that they, put, they, they print flyers and send it all throughout the land. They put it in all the different languages of the people that they have conquered, and, and, and they spread flyers throughout the whole land, even throughout the city of Susa and throughout the palace. Everybody re re receives these flyers that says that these people are going to die on this day, at this month, at this time. And what does it say? about Haman and the king. The king and Haman sat back and had a drink while the city of Susa reeled from the news. They had a drink at your demise. Last thing I want to put on your mind, and it ain't a positive thing, but it's a real thing. If nothing else, you're going to get truth in this Esther series. Last thing I want to put on your mind, 
somebody is plotting your downfall right now. Somewhere, might be in here. They got about 40 people in here, might be in here. If they ain't in here, there's somebody out there who's plotting your demise. And you know what they're doing while they're plotting your demise? They're having a drink. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.